This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The question of who represents the United States via their face on the nation's paper currency came to a head under the white supremacist leadership of former President Donald Trump. After it was decided that the great abolitionist and freedom fighter Harriet Tubman would grace the $20 bill, Trump reversed the formal process to do so. It has now been taken up by the Biden administration. In a book detailing the context of race and democracy that frames the reasons why Tubman, and not, say, Andrew Jackson, belongs on the bill, author Dr. Clarence Lusane takes us on a critically important historical tour. Dr. Lusane is the former chair of Howard University's Department of Political Science, current director of its International Affairs Program. He's an author, activist, scholar, lecturer, and journalist. For more than 40 years, he's written about and been active in national and international human rights, anti-racism politics, diaspora engagements, U.S. foreign policy, democracy building, and social justice issues. He now joins me to discuss his new book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lusain. Thank you for having me. So first, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Harriet Tubman was supposed to be on the bill, is supposed to be on the bill again, but it's apparently going to take a while. Give me, uh, give our audience a sense of why she hasn't yet made it onto the bill and what it's going to take to get her on there. Okay, thank you uh, for, uh, again for having me. And let me give a little of context, uh, uh, then kind of bring it up to date. So as many people listening will know, in 2015, during the last uh, year or so of the Obama administration, then Treasury Secretary Jack Lew announced that there were going to be changes in the images on the $5, $10, and $20 bills. Uh, this came about because there was a need to make changes due to security reasons, and they wanted to take an uh, opportunity to make the images more representative. And so uh, that coincided with efforts that had been ongoing by women who were calling for women to be on the currency. Uh, as, as anybody who has any pop, pocket uh, paper currency knows, uh, there are no women who are on the $5, $10, $1, $100 bills, $50 bills. So that was sort of the uh, catalyst. Now there's a, actually longer history that's really important because it, came across, I think, to many as kind of a top-down decision. But for decades, uh, women and, and African-Americans and others had raised issues about the images on the bills and what those represented. And in particular, uh, Andrew Jackson. Uh, there were Native Americans who would not touch Andrew Jackson at all. And uh, the choice, the consensus choice, that came about from not only what Jack Lou and the Treasury Department was doing with listening groups, but from uh, women who were organizing, particularly a group called Women on the 20, uh, the consensus person was uh, Harriet Tubman, as you uh, noted. And the decision to put her on the 20 
uh, was clearly to replace uh, Andrew Jackson. Now, they had decided, and I think it's still in flux, that Jackson will be put to the back of the bill. And that, of course, is a big contradiction because the whole point of having, having Harriet Tubman is to have a, someone who actually represents a different perspective and to put him on the back would uh, negate that, I think. Uh, now, the reason it's taken so long is because the changes that have to be made aren't just about the images, they're also about uh, security measures uh, that just take years to do. The Obama um, administration, I think, misled people and felt and argued that it could happen in a couple of years, that it would be ready uh, in 2020 for the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, uh, which gave women the right to vote, uh, but it didn't. And Donald Trump tried to stop it, I think. He certainly was not happy about it, but it was too far down the road. He really didn't have an alternative. The changes actually have to happen. Uh, but uh, given how long it's going to take, the projection that is that it probably won't be until about 2029, 2030 uh, before uh, the government 20 and then the other bills can be actually issued. So we have a situation now where the Biden administration is saying it'll happen, but as you mentioned, it's going to take several years. But why is this so important? You know, one could argue this is mere symbolism. Symbolism is not the same as policy or is not, not as good as policy instead of, you know, why aren't we fighting for reparations instead of uh, having Harriet Tubman's face on the $20 bill? How do you respond to that? So you raise a very uh, salient point. So while there's been overall uh, in the black community, overall uh, uh, acceptance and celebration of being put on the 20, uh, there also has been opposition. Now there's conservative opposition, which simply wanted to maintain the status quo. Uh, but there's been opposition from progressive uh, particularly some progressive Black women who uh, raised the exact point that you uh, noted that this is uh, or could be symbolism, that this is performative anti-racism. It doesn't really address critical issues that are facing uh, Black women, specifically Black people in general uh, and the country as a whole. And I'm sympathetic to those uh, feelings, because we've seen this again and again and again, uh, particularly in this era where Black Lives Matter uh, gets appropriated by corporations and, and others uh, to evade really dealing with the kind of questions and issues that uh, also matter. And that's why the book is titled $20 and Change, is to uh, make the argument that there is a link between these issues of representation and identity and the exercise of power. I contend that power actually gets exercised not only by force, but also by ideology, also by control of uh, public narratives. And that's just where symbolism comes in. And again, the, who's chosen to be on this currency uh, is a message. It's a story of who's important, who is not. 
whose history should be given acknowledgement, who should be ignored. And you couldn't find two more contrasting individuals than uh, Harriet Tubman, who was a fierce fighter her entire life for an expansive democracy that included racial justice, equality for women, rights for people who were disabled, uh, taking care of people who were poor and marginalized, uh, fighting for voting rights. And then Andrew Jackson, who enslaved people, built his fortune on the trade slave, uh, personally, hands-on participated in massacres of uh, Native Americans. Uh, so those are two very different uh, positions in U.S. society and positions in terms of where the country needs to go. So it's the argument uh, is that uh, symbolism is important, but it has to accompany the work, the organizing that needs to happen for change. And also, let's look at the flip side. Um, if symbolism wasn't important, white supremacists like Donald Trump wouldn't uphold people like Andrew Jackson, would they? This is exactly right. And we wouldn't see uh, what's going on in Florida today, for example, mm. where Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has made it his brand to reverse completely any idea that the history and the experiences of women, people of color, people in the LGBT community, uh, basically anybody that's not white Christian uh, does not matter. And as you pointed out, uh, Donald Trump's defense of Andrew Jackson uh, and white supremacy uh, overall was basically his go-to. Uh, that wasn't, these weren't exceptions. This is his defining character. Anytime there was an effort to, uh, I, to address the uh, problem of celebrating the Confederacy, uh, Donald Trump would defend it. So, for example, uh, even the military, even the U.S. Department of Defense and Hawks uh, in the U.S. government were in agreement that uh, military bases named after Confederate generals and segregationists should be changed. Uh, why would you name a fort or a building after someone who tried to overthrow the government? Donald Trump, of course, threatened to veto the legislation uh, because, again, his go-to was white supremacy. And that just happened again and again and again. And he's not alone. My argument at this point is virtually the entire Republican Party, certainly Republican leadership, uh, are uh, at that place, uh, or at least willing to completely let that run. So it isn't just... Uh, uh, a power battle over identity is really a power battle over power. So Harriet Tubman has, you know, her name is, is well enough known, I suppose, especially for those who have bothered to study history or, or, or been lucky enough to get good quality history education in school or in college. Uh, but has there been enough to showcase what she did? And, and so let's delve into that because in your book, you dig deep into her life, not just the part of her life that's best known in terms of how she organized the Underground Railroad, but a lot more about who she was as a 
person. Um, so give us a sense, a thumbnail sketch. Obviously, people can you know pick up your book and read it in its entirety to get a fuller picture. But a thumbnail sketch of who this person, Harriet Tubman, was. So Harriet Tubman, uh, as anyone who went to second or third grade in the U.S., uh, is exceptionally well known for her heroism in not only her escaping slavery in 1849, but her going back on numerous occasions, uh, at least 19, and bringing people out of slavery. Some were her family, some were other people. And she went again and again and again at great risk to her own personal uh, safety. Uh, and that story is, is, is just well known, uh, not only US, but globally. Uh, during the Civil War, she was contracted with the U.S. military to be a spy and a scout because she knew the areas. She had walked those areas. She had, um, in you know, very daring kinds of ways, uh, evaded uh, people who were desperately looking for it. So who better to be a spy or to be a scout? Uh, but she did everything else. She was a cook. She was a nurse. She was a seamstress. Uh, she did tons of uh, different tasks uh, doing that. And that's a little bit better known. But then that's where history tends to stop for most people relative to Tubman. And she lived to uh, 1913. She had decades and decades of life uh, after that. So what did she do? Uh, and this is really important. Her value system that she brought to freeing people from slavery uh, expanded to many other areas. So for example, she uh, was engaged with the suffrage movement. Uh, she thought it was absolutely important that women had the right to vote. Uh, now, she died in early March, uh, 1913, uh, right before a very uh, historic Women's March was going to happen in Washington, D.C. Uh, and that march that took place in uh, uh, March uh, 1913 uh, was a bit controversial uh, because uh, it was basically being run by uh, white women, many of whom were segregationists. Uh, some did not want Black women in the march at all. Uh, they finally came to the decision and said, well, okay, Black women can march, but you have to march at the back of the march. And the Black women who were planning to attend said, yeah, we're going to be there, but we're not doing that. And they pretty much marched where they felt like marching, uh, including uh, women who came from Howard University. That's, now, that's where that is your workplace. <laughs> my, my, my legacy. I'm yeah. so proud. And Harriet Tubman was on her deathbed. She was literally dying. And some of her last words that she said to some of the Black women suffrage who came to visit her uh, before they went to the march was, uh, tell the women to stand strong for God will not forsake us, you know, end of quote. This is on her dying bed. So wow. this, this is her entire life. She was dedicated to justice uh, and inclusiveness, fairness, uh, and equality. So that, you know, is what I really want to get across to people. 
uh, that, you know, look at the entire arc of her life, because uh, there's a lot to learn from that as we deal with the issues we deal with today. And again, there is the importance of symbolism. So with the with the, the suffrage work that she did, uh, bring us up to date with the relevance of her work in ongoing America, in, in the contemporary political landscape where voting rights, particularly voting rights of people of color, particularly of African-Americans, are under attack precisely because they seem to threaten the resurgent white supremacist forces. Oh, absolutely. So the uh, uh, Harry Tubman uh, never saw a full day of democracy her entire life. Mm. Uh, when she died, women still could not vote. In effect, Black people in the South could not vote. Uh, Native Americans could not vote. Uh, it wasn't until the 19th Amendment in 1920 women got the right to vote, but still women of color were not necessarily getting able to exercise their right. Uh, 1924, uh, there was a special law that passed that gave Native Americans the right to vote. Uh, and then 1965, the Voting Rights Act. However, there was never a single point where there wasn't resistance and pushback on those achievements and those gains. And what we're seeing in the modern era is that the Republican Party in particular has decided that it cannot win elections fairly. It does not have an agenda that's popular. And the uh, constituency of the Democratic Party that most needs to be uh, have their votes denied uh, are Black and Latino communities. And so across the country, they have continued to push through legislation because we don't have a national election system, it all goes down to states, uh, where possible, they have put in voter suppression laws. We're in February of 2023, already this year, there have been dozens, dozens of proposed voter suppression laws across at least half the states. So this uh, struggle is not going to go away, our victories, have to be protected and fought for because in a blink of an eye, uh, they will be removed uh, if the far right forces and the white nationalist forces are able to uh, to have their sway. Uh, and so I think Harriet Tubman's uh, call to us is you have to keep this fight up. This is a battle that is ongoing. Uh, you have victories, you have gains, but you can't assume that they will not be uh, reversed. Your book, although it has a picture of Harriet Tubman on the cover, delves deep into the racial justice uprisings of 2020. Uh, the George Floyd Catalyst is the title of one of your chapters. Uh, how does Harriet Tubman's legacy remain relevant in light of the what we you know, refer to by shorthand as the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in light of the fact that 2020, we saw record numbers of police-related uh, ki police killings or p killings by police of Americans. Uh, Black people are, again, disproportionately killed. We saw most recently the killing of Tyree Nichols by mm -hmm. Black officers in Tennessee. And, you know, it seems as though Harriet Tubman could still 
offer us some lessons, right, around how to approach this continued fight for justice around police violence? Yeah, so uh, 2020 was really a uh, important uh, moment. Uh, we saw not only these high profile killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Armand Arbery, uh, so many others, uh, but we also saw not only a national response, but a global response. Millions of people around the world uh, took to the streets by a number of studies uh, 19, uh, 2020 was the longest and most durable protests uh, in history, that for months in hundreds of cities around the U.S., people were demonstrating, protesting, uh, praying, sitting in, you know, all the things to, uh, that you do to bring attention uh, to these issues and concerns. Now, the What's important about noting that is while that was an, ex uh, uh, an explosion, it had been years and years of preparation. And you can go back as far as you can go back and Latino community, the Black community, uh, the Asian, Native American communities have consistently highlighted the disproportionate harassment and murders uh, in those communities uh, by police systems. And those police systems have often had high streaks of white nationalism and white supremacy, but they're systems. And even when people of color have been in them, that has not stopped the killings. So when George Floyd was killed, there were four police officers, two white, one Asian, and one black. So it wasn't just all white officers uh, who, who murdered uh, uh, Floyd. But we have seen white supremacist policing where black communities are very much targeted and white officers very much uh, connected to white nationalist uh, far-right organizations uh, and ideologies uh, have also been uh, the victimizers uh, of these communities. So all of these issues kind of go on and on. And again, going back to slavery, where police departments emerged specifically to go after people who had uh, escaped slavery or who were threatening uh, slavery votes. And so, uh, you know, again, that's a lesson there. Uh, I also talk about in the book um, the disproportionate way in which uh, health care has been uh, meted out in this country. And that chapter is titled From 1619 to COVID-19. Mm. And what I uh, look at is that from the very beginning, from when Black people first came to the country, uh, their health care has never been a priority. And we saw that again and again and again. Uh, Harriet Tubman, and this again uh, was something that I did not know, or at least had not remembered uh, when I was working, before I started working on the book. Uh, Harriet Tubman had a disability that came out of 
the time when she was enslaved. When she was a young girl, uh, maybe 11 or 12, uh, she was hit in the head uh, with a very with a uh, heavy uh, metal object of some sort. Uh, she almost bled to death. Uh, she was in and out of consciousness. Uh, she finally kind of physically recovered, but she had seizures all the rest of her life uh, as a result of that, uh, which makes it even more remarkable when you think all the things she accomplished with this uh, ability that literally in the middle of a sentence, she was just sort of, you know, pass out. Right. And, and um, the U.S. government never fully compensated her for the role that she played in the war, um, as you point out at the beginning of your book. So she struggled with all of this with very little right. support. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Uh, but she never gave up. And, uh, you know, this this woman who came from just, uh, you know, unimaginable circumstances, uh, you know, managed to have such an impact on the world. Uh, so, you know, we, we rightfully honor her. Uh, and again, juxtaposed with, you know, Jackson. Right. And so uh, is it safe to say then that we shouldn't necessarily think of, for example, policing through the lens of the race of individuals, but as forces or institutions or systems that serve white supremacy? Uh, yes, I would nuance it a little bit because we do need to acknowledge white nationalism and white supremacy. Uh, and there are uh, many white officers, I think, who very much uh, lean into these far right, uh, far right white nationalist ideas. Uh, and that to the degree that there has been circumscribing of the way in which Black communities have been policed has come through uh, Black officers and Black police chiefs who uh, had a better sensitivity uh, to what communities uh, were going through. Now, again, Fundamentally, it's the system, the systems of policing that are in place, um, protection through qualified immunity. You know, those are not racially specific. Those are the way in which the policing is structured. So those need to go regardless of who uh, is in charge. But, you know, I would draw a little bit of a line because uh, we've seen, you know, white police officers uh, police Black communities very, very differently. Right. Well, I want to thank you so much, Clarence, for joining us today. There's so much more we could talk about, but uh, our audience can get a hold of your book, $20 and Change, to get the full picture. Uh, really appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for this discussion. My guest has been Dr. Clarence Lussain, former chair of Howard University's Department of Political Science and the current director of its International Affairs Program. He's an author, activist, scholar, lecturer, and journalist. Uh, we've been discussing his new book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.